Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of July 2020. Welcome to episode 62 of this podcast series, a.k.a. Social Distance Reading Journal number 5. This episode might be a long, because I've read a lot of comics lately. The concept of the show is to just have a brief chat about what comics I've read since the last time we had one of these brief chats, which should make this pretty much the books I read during July. These issues are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com, and I regularly repost them on my Facebook and Twitter so you can find those. But those posts aren't spoilers for this podcast, because those are just lists. And here, we do a little more review, a little more critique, a little more discussion. But first, a little feedback from our good buddy, Podcasting's Michael Bailey. Professor, while I enjoyed the latest episode, as I always do, nothing in the episode grabbed me and said, you have to talk to him about this. Which was bound to happen eventually. Plus, work is more intensive now, and there's a lot going on. But this show, as well as your other shows, provided some well-needed fun time. And for that, I'm grateful. Uh, We aim to please, Mike. We aim to please. But I made a commitment to give feedback, so I'll ask a question in lieu of commentary. How awesome is it that between Marvel Unlimited and the DC Universe app, We can follow along with so many podcasts. I ask this, because when I started podcasting, following along either required you to already have the book the show is covering, or you'd have to lay out money to get it. To be fair, these apps do have monthly or annual charges, but I don't need to tell you, Professor, how much money that actually saves a listener over a period of time. What I'm saying is I'm grateful for these services, because I may be willing to spend more than a quarter on books. Huh. I feel judged all of a sudden, Mike. (laughs) But sometimes I just want to read the thing and be done with it. Take care, my friend, or rather, these days, let me say, be careful out there. Podcasting's Michael Bailey. Well, of course, as, as Mike knows, and many listeners know, I began the process of buying books to listen along with podcasts. And I did that at my first ever quarterly quarter bin sale, was to follow from crisis to crisis. So, Michael, thank you. And Sir Iowa's Joe felt the need to defend himself for sending me a couple of questionable 1990s books when I thought that he and I were becoming good internet friends. Posting a pic of a big stack of a certain image title, he said, I hope this proves that I was not trying to be cruel by sending you Brigade. A, it was a double, and B, I enjoy the series, especially the Blood Brothers crossover. Now, on sending me Wrath, He admitted he didn't remember that very well. Well, Joe, my lockdown hair is beginning to resemble that of a number of 90s characters, so 
I'll allow it. All is forgiven. Our reigning listeners of the year, Ruth and Darren from the Rad Adventures Network, tweeted, Yay! Time for a new episode. And social media support for last episode came from Randy Watts, Chris from Professor Frenzy, It's a Show, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Kirk Spencer, a.k.a. Big Five Army, and Baby Skeletor, Tardis Rider, David Ace Gutierrez of the late Lamented Ultraverse Podcast Network, Sir Luke Giaconetti, Chris Lydon, Sean Ross, Old School Ross, Billy D from Into the Weird, Frederick Lardero, Gene Hendricks from The Hammer Strikes, Sir, Sir Martin of Grey, Vic from Phoenix, Bill Baer, James Williams, Max Traver, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Manuel Carmona from Truthful Comics, and Derek from the History of Comics on Film YouTube series. And now, on to the books that I read last month. And as I do on this show, I'm categorizing or classifying these books. And first are the issues that I read specifically for podcasting. The homework books. And for the latest episode of Doomspeak, the fourth one, without a new issue of the ongoing being delivered to comic shops. Our new coronavirus! I read Doom, The Emperor Returns, one through three. And for Darkness to Light number 40, I read a crowdfunded OGN by longtime comics pro Meredith Finch, The Book of Ruth, a Dust Bowl era take on the biblical story of the same name. And then some follow ups to Quarterbin 155. That's where Luke, Jack, and Eddie and I got our public domain on talking about Sam Hill P.I. number 7. And as promised on that episode, I went ahead and read Sam Hill P.I. 1 through 6, the rest of that series. And that was interesting because the formats of the issues were a little different from the one that we covered. They hadn't quite gotten into that rhythm in the first couple of issues, so you had stories of different lengths, including some one-page mysteries as well. All in all, I thought this was a very interesting 1950s, almost noir, almost hard case, P.I. crime story. And also, thanks to information from Sir, Sir Martin of Grey, I also read the Archie 80th anniversary book, Archie Meets Sam Hill, which was a delight. And Martin, by the way, it is great to have a friend who is resourceful and curious. Martin also pointed me to a digital-only OGN from 2015, Sam Hill in the Crosshairs. That one was more intense than the Archie published one, something more similar to the original stories from the 50s, a little more pulpish, a little more hard-boiled. But then again, a pretty good read. I'm going to go a little bit more in-depth on both of those, in Quarterbin Podcast, probably 157. I'll revisit the, the Sam Hill books again in just a little more detail than I just did right there. And another podcast follow-up from a series 
I talked about on the quarter bin a little while back. I read Satan's Six, number four, from Topps Comics, which I picked up at Crazy Comics recently. This is a series based on a concept created by Jack Kirby. And this issue was an interesting wrap-up with actual literal demons and devils being no match for the cunning deceptions of a couple of modern earthly attorneys. Sounds about right. Right, Paul Spatero? And another quarterbin follow-up, Captain Victory, number five, sent in by the very generous Sir Iowa Joe. This is an early 1980s book that Jack Kirby did with Pacific Comics. It's crazy. It's wild. It's Kirby. And comics I read, as we just discussed with podcasting's Michael Bailey, for listening to podcasts. And there are more of these than there have been in the past because of the app and me realizing how many podcasts I listen to cover DC Comics. So when I have the chance, I love listening along, following along, and the app certainly gives me the chance uh, to do that. Speaking of Mike, listening to episode 42 of The Overlooked Dark Knight with uh, he and Andy Leyland, I read a couple of issues from Jim Starlin's run, Batman 421 through 423, where the dynamic duo track down a serial slasher and then rescue a couple of street kids. And for more of Michael Bailey's podcasting efforts for this time, on From Crisis to Crisis, I read Action 717 and Superman, The Man of Steel 53. And to listen along with episode 393 of the Superman Fan Podcast, where Billy Hogan talked about some stories written by the late Denny O'Neill in Superman 233, that's the classic Kryptonite Nevermore story, and Superman 240, which led me to reading more Supermans from this era, which I'll, I'll get to later in this episode. And to listen along with episode 78, and 79 of the Legion Clubhouse. I read from the DCU app again, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes 222 to 224. One of these featured a very troubling Tyrock story. I know what you're thinking. All of the Tyrock stories from the 70s could be pretty troubling. But we also got the Time Trapper. And that story was quite excellent. And to listen along with Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower, and her crew, on episode 36 of the Huntress podcast, I read direct from the 1970s, a story when it was Helena Wayne as the Huntress, Batman Family 19, which involves arson in Gotham City. This was a continuing story, and I'm not sure where it leads to, seeing as this was the last issue of Batman Family, I will stay tuned to the Hunter's Podcast, and hopefully they will tell me. And on to new comics that we read right off the shelves. And yes, we have one. I'm not sure we'll have one next month, but for now, let's talk about Justice League Dark 23, which wraps up the Parliaments of Life story, but the bigger arc with the Upside Down Man is continuing. So I am mixed if I'm going to continue it. I did take it off my pull list, 
But when 24 hits the shelves, I'm going to flip through it and make the call. Again, I've enjoyed this run, but that's because I enjoy the characters and the setup. Not so much that I've enjoyed, you know, the actual stuff that they've done over all 23 of these issues. So maybe conflicted is the best word for how I feel about that. And this one, I think, sort of counts because I am getting it fresh as it's released, though I'm reading it off of Hoopla, and that is Ghosted in L.A. number 10, which continues the story of a college student who has stumbled upon a house that is uh, dwelt in by ghosts, and strange things are happening at the house, and the ghosts are starting to think that their house might be haunted. And on to the general comic reading that I did from the generous Canadian Sir Rob Lance of the Comic Connection store in Oakville, Ontario. I read Splinter of the Mind's Eye number 4, based on the Alan Dean Foster novel that was the original licensed sequel to Star Wars. I reread the novel just last year and thought that the way that the adventure wrapped up in this issue was pretty faithful to that from what I could remember. And this issue, issue four, also contained a splash page towards the end of it that replicated the iconic cover from that novel. So very excited to see that. And overall, the issue was pretty good. Sir, I was Joe sending some comics recently, including Ultra number five from Image Comics from 2004. This is from the Lunar Brothers and is a take on real-world superheroes and all of that drama. It has a bit of a People magazine take on that. Uh, Not quite TMZ, but, but close. Certainly not a bad concept, and this one at least was an interesting read and made me a little curious about the title. Joe also sent Batman Annual 14, another version of a Two-Face origin story, and a pretty good one. And he sent an issue of the world's greatest illustrated magazine. It says so on the cover, so you know it's true. That was Heavy Metal 298 from earlier this year. Very interesting. Over 140 pages of glossy, impressive sci-fi comic stories. There were a few continuing stories, but most of these were were full stories, beginnings, middles, and ends, most of which landed in that eight-page or so sweet spot. The longest was 17. Now, that one was very good, called Philip K. Dick's Head is Missing. Not everyone worked for me, and that's why I'm always hesitant to purchase big, expensive anthologies. But usually, like this one, I've kind of learned that I end up liking more of the stories than I don't. And that's certainly what happened with this one. And then I got some books just out of the blue recently from Sir Luke Giaconetti. I mean, there are no sports going on. So he hadn't lost a bet to me. I mean, that's usually how he gives me comics. Uh, I mean, I'm grateful nonetheless. And that care package included Giant Size Master of Kung Fu number 1 from 1974. This 68-page issue contains five all-new Steel Smashing Sagas, starring the one and only Shang-Chi. They're all good, but the first story was the best one and also the longest one. 
There it is Shang-Chi's birthday, and his father Fu Manchu sends assassin after assassin after him to also make it his death day. But his father fails. And even after defeating all of those people, Fu Manchu still considers his son too weak and unworthy to be his son. Very well done story. And Sir Luke sent a book from Free Comic Book Day 2016, Attack on Titan. This was a preview book, the three stories leading into a big anthology issue. And he sent a totally falling apart, coverless copy, which means, by the way, an awesome copy of The Phantom Number 4 from way back in 1963. I've read a decent amount of The Ghost Who Walks over the last few years, and this one was pretty solid. The lead story featured hostile tribes deep in the jungle, and that is probably problematic these days. But the other story, with him going up against a band of pirates, that really holds up, and was also a very entertaining story. Luke also sent G.I. Joe number one from IDW from 2009 for this one. I'm not going to get into the details. Let's just say it's a modern war book written by Chuck Dixon. You do the math. It's really good. Same with Marvel Tales 110 with Spidey taking on the Molten Man. Just a solid comic book. And that total fanhole, Derek W.C., sent me some comics a while back, including Captain America number 6 from 2012 from the Ed Brubaker run. Cap has been having bad dreams that have been worrying him. But when a riot breaks out, he and Hawkeye head to the scene. And then Cap puts two and two together and deduces that a mad bomb is involved. I don't think I've read anything from this specific run before, but had lots of interesting characters and references and subplots. Michael Lane from Comics in the Golden Age sent some very cool stuff recently, including Marvel Treasury Edition number 4, featuring 100 pages of extra-sized Conan goodness. The two main stories are both Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith adaptations of original Robert E. Howard stories, including a 60-page take on Red Nails, one of the top handful of best original REH stories. Very enjoyable adaptation. And at the treasury size, this was just a beautiful as well as enjoyable issue. I haven't seen a ton of treasury size books, but I can certainly see why they can be so enthralling to some. He also sent... uh, a modern take on the Sumerian, Savage Sword of Conan number 5. This is from last year and is a, a color comic book, not, not the black and white magazine of the same name. Uh, this was decompressed, part 5 of an ongoing story, so I didn't get the big picture plot, but it was certainly 20-some pages of adventurous fun. And from Brenda, The Crazy Cat Lady, I read Showcase 93 number 5 featuring Robin. Geoforce, and Blue Devil. And of these three, and maybe this speaks to the shaky quality of the other two stories, but my favorite was Geoforce. And I don't think I've ever read 
any comic ever before in my entire life where I've said the best thing about it was Geoforce. So there you go, Showcase 93, number five. You have broken new ground. Dr. Anthony the Engineer sent in some books last year, including Harold, Lovecraft, and Tesla, number one, from Action Lab. Interestingly, and I talked about this a month or two ago, I read some books with a similar concept recently, Rough Riders. This one does not have Teddy Roosevelt, but it does have Amelia Earhart and Einstein, and most obviously Tesla and Lovecraft. And the stories are certainly not identical, but the big picture concept, the story, those actually were pretty similar, at least as far as this issue goes. When the protests were getting uh, started up in June, a list of black-owned comic stores went around the internet, and I saw that there was one here in Columbus, Ohio, Crazy Comics. It is crazy with a K and a couple of Zs, you know, because comics. So I've been a couple times recently to spend a certain budgeted amount there because that is one thing that I can do and support. I, I believe that the economy, the free market, can be a powerful force for social change. And from the dollar bins there, I bought a pretty beat-up version, but it was a buck, of World's Finest 234 from 1975. It was Bob Haney, so I was almost prepared for the robots. These shape-shifting Chinese martial arts experts, the self-sacrificial astronauts, Batman in outer space, the aliens, and the identity switcheroo. I mean... Almost prepared. In Battlestar Galactica Zero from Dynamite from 2018, this is a story from the classic era, the original 1970s version of the show. Good adventure, beautiful art. And most importantly, my sci-fi loving brother-in-law doesn't have this one, so I can save it and give it to him for Christmas. I know what you're thinking. Yes. Genius. Sorry, did you guys say cheap? No. Genius. And Warp Special number two from First Comics, featuring Lord Cumulus and Sargon, the Mistress of War. This is a world I discovered during Quarterbin 100 when Ed Moore and I discussed an issue of this title. I think we actually did Warp Special number one. Anyway, it's, it, it's an interesting sci-fi world. And this issue teaches the lesson that opposition does not always come from an enemy, nor help from a friend. Good stuff, Peter Begillis and Mark Silvestri, doing really interesting work. And from the 50-cent boxes at Pulp Reality, I read another of the timely 70-year Marvel anniversary books, Miss America. The way these worked was that you got an original story featuring the Golden Age character along with a number, and in this case that number was three, three reprint stories from all winners' comics from the Timely Era from 1943 and 1944. This has been one of my favorite ways for a company to celebrate an anniversary, to, to, to celebrate their legacy. 
and from ILCS, World's Greatest Comics, books that cost anywhere from a buck all the way down to, are you sitting down? 10 cents. And from that range of prices, I picked up Legion of Superheroes Annual Number 1 from 1982. Great story, with the frame of this being Siobhan Aaron's first day as the science police liaison to the Legion. And this was when I was really into the Legion, and I really loved the science police, their role with the team, and their inclusion as side characters, regular side characters for the Legion. And Siobhan was a breakout character, at, at least to me and my, my comic reading buddies. A good issue. And Star Trek, the Next Generation Special, number one, from 1993, three stories, each one focusing on a different character. Uh, first Guinan, and then Worf and his son. And then, in a really good story written by Diane Duane, Data and his cat. I've talked recently a couple of times about DC's deep bench of animal characters. And here, Exhibit Z. That was a fun and funny story, and the whole issue was pretty good. And the oversized Nightwing, Alfred's Return from 1995. I guess Alfred had quit and was running around the world having fun and landed back in London and ran across a flame from his acting days. And they rekindle a romance, but it wasn't all that it seemed. And Alfie gets in a bit over his head, relying on lessons he's learned from Batman, and then with a little help from Dick Grayson, things get sets to right, and at the end he chooses to return to Bruce's employ. A fact that was kind of spoiled by the title of the comic, Alfred's Return. Come on, guys! (laughs) And some kids' books I read mostly from Sir Rob, and also some from Sir I Was Joe, and some from Hoopla. I read Little Archie's Lucky Day, Richie Rich Millions, 58, 74, 86, and 98, Archie's Double Digest 211, Archie and Friends, Double Digest 21 and 22, Archie at Riverdale High, 49, and Archie Giant Series, 587 and 599. Little Archie is generally not one of my favorites, but... Uh, the one that I read of that was a modern take by Franco and Baltazar, and was pretty enjoyable. Uh, one of the digests uh, featured some stories with Archie One, uh, a series that put the characters in prehistoric times. It's a silly premise. It's a stupid premise, yes. But they actually got a pretty good amount of good stories out of that. Archie Giant series 587 and 589 were very interesting and that they put the cast in a Challengers of the Unknown uh, style of, 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 of story under the title Explorers into the Unknown. They were both very fun, especially the second one where they take on a Doctor Doom pastiche. I enjoyed these so much that I checked out on Hoopla what I found there, a trade collecting all eight of the explorers into the unknown story. So I expect to read those other six next month and talk about them in the August episode.
There is an old saying about being a radio personality that certainly applies to being a podcaster. And that is that you go into this line of work, we've said this before, for three reasons. To help your friends, to crush your enemies, and to get free stuff. I really only have one or two enemies, and I hope I've helped my friends over the years. But we all know that this network, especially the Comics Reading Journal, is evidence of the value of the final part, the getting of free stuff. Of course, that's mostly from lovely listeners, many of whose names you've heard in this very episode, certainly many past and future episodes. But I also, and it is rare, but I do get approached by creators or publishers who offer free stuff in exchange for a review. And what I tell anyone who makes this offer is that I talk about every comic I read on this podcast, no matter how I feel about that comic, good, bad, or indifferent. On this show, I try to be honest. And to be honest, after hearing that reply for me, a number of creators choose to not follow up and not send their comics for review. But when the folks at TKO Studios heard that, they were not scared. The PR person there said they completely understood, and sent me some stuff anyway. Sent four collections, collections of The Banks, one through six. This one is by Roxanne Gay, Ming Doyle, and Jordi Belair. It tells the story of an African-American family, The Banks. Note that the title of the book replaces the S with a dollar sign. The Banks have a heritage wherein the females of the family have been the most successful thieves in Chicago for generations. But Celia Banks has turned her back on her mother and grandmother and their heritage and has become an investment banker. But Celia finds that her gender and race seem to be holding her back from promotion at the firm. And then she meets one of their biggest and richest clients, and he treats her poorly. She decides to join the family business for one really good score. Of course, her mom and grandma are a little hesitant to bring Celia in, as they've been at odds for years about their differing uh, career choices. Oh, and she has a white boyfriend, and that just adds to all the drama. This was very enjoyable, and timely in a weird way. Inventive, very well done. They also sent Sentient 1-6, through six, written by the excellent Jeff Lemire. This is a terrific series, in which a spaceship loses all of its adults, leaving the kids behind to run everything, and figure out what to do. Well, it's the kids and the ship's AI. And things sort of go sort of okay, until they dock at a refueling station and end up running into another crew. And that crew and that ship's AI want this ship. And that's where the drama starts. Like I said, this one is terrific and contains some of the drama and pathos and plot concepts that made Descender so good. Uh, Lemire is one of the better writers of straight sci-fi comics these days, and I think if you liked his Descender and Ascender, then 
sentient is a reasonable follow-up for you. This is a very good example of his skill. By the way, the podcast Back to the Bins, including longtime friend of the Quarter Bin podcast, Paul Spatero, did an entire episode recently covering sentient. So they went into much more detail. So please uh, check out that episode. I also got from TKO The Seven Deadly Sins, one through six. This is a, a rough and tumble western set in 1867. You have a motley crew of troublemakers who end up thrown together, and they set out for a search uh, for freedom. None of these people are particularly lovable. Most are not likable, but they are compelling in their own way. Whether it's the questionable priest, the ex-convicts, the very, very pregnant black lady, they all have their own story, their own reasons for doing what they're doing. And what they end up doing is violent and rough and bloody. Again, a very interesting read. And lastly, another terrific one, Sarah, 1 through 6. This is a Garth Ennis story of a female Russian sniper taking on the Nazis and taking them down relentlessly, one after another. This one is a deep, personal story about Sarah, about her crew of female snipers, and their relationship to each other, and to Mother Russia, and to the Russian army. It's intense, it's dramatic, at times it's heartbreaking. You really get to know the small cadre of snipers, especially the title character. In a lot of ways, it's a story I haven't seen told before. Certainly not told in this way. Again, very interesting. Very, very good. Now, I talked about this last episode, and I did mention that we were going to be doing a giveaway uh, at the start of July on our social media for one lucky listener who was going to receive one of these big collected editions. And the winner was... Actually, there were two winners, as it turned out, and I couldn't bring myself to picking only one. So both Bill Beer of the Bat Pod and Michael T. Geist got a TKO collection, and also a few extra comics thrown in for good measure. If you are interested in purchasing any of these from TKO or any of their other output, and if you'd like to pay 20% off the cover price, then may I recommend you use the discount Geeky20 when you check out at tkopresents.com or you can go directly to tkopresents.com slash discount slash geeky20. We thank TKO Studios for their support and for Shannon in particular for working with us to make this happen. All right, it's time to take a break here and when we come back, We'll talk about the graphic novels, trade paperbacks, and long runs that I read in July. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters. 
and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Batgirl Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Batgirl run, Dwayne Swierzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Batgirl Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. And we're back to talk about trades, long runs, and miniseries that I read last month. And from the combination of World's Greatest Comics and the Hoopla digital app, I read She-Hulk 1 through 11 from 2016. The first trade was actually just titled Hulk to emphasize the fact that at this point, Jennifer Walters was the only Hulk around, her cousin having died in the Civil War. So Jen tries to live a normal life, go back to work at a law firm, and not hulk out all that often. She is even not green when she's not hulked out. But her cases all involve people with weird situations, and the first one she gets involved with is a tenant-landlord dispute, and those can get ugly, especially when the tenant has access to a dark, malevolent protector force. Then we get a storyline of a YouTube personality who's given a drug that turns him pretty much into a Hulk on livestream. Jen and her buddy Patsy Walker, Hellcat, take this big monster down while also having some great BFF moments. And issue 11, the last one was fun with Jen going on a first date and also the comic was done in the fourth wall breaking style reminiscent of the John Byrne run of She-Hulk way back in the day. That was a great change of pace, a nice homage to the past of the character. Overall, a pretty fun bunch of stories. I have no idea how this run is thought of, if it is even ever thought of at all. But I thought it was a fun little read. And from Sir Rob Lance and the DCU app. I've read Power Girl 1 through 4. This was the miniseries written by Paul Kupperberg. This was during the Arion era, which I don't generally like for Power Girl, but it did give her magical, mystical adversaries to battle, and I liked that. I liked the cast that Kupperberg created for, both in her apartment, you know, her, her neighbors, the, the people around her there, and her work at the Star software company. I know the company stuff added drama to her and gave a secret identity and all that. And obviously this is just me, just because I know a little bit about business. But the business stuff was very unrealistic. But overall, the series was enjoyable, 
except for maybe the 1980s hair. Which, during our fifth month of lockdown, I am pretty much rocking myself, so who am I to judge? And from the combination of crazy comics and world's greatest comics, my two favorite stores in Columbus, Ohio. I saw two issues of a DC series I was completely unfamiliar with, but I picked up these two issues within about 30 minutes of each other on the same comic book shopping trip. Solo, Scott Hampton, and Solo, Sergio Aragonés. This was a series of 2006 issues where artists just did whatever types of stories they wanted to do with their own unique style. Both of those were very interesting, and the one by Sergio, sorry, I'm not going to try his last name again. Fool me once, comic book. Obviously, his were quite funny. Interesting that both of these issues had stories that took very, very sharp jabs at the comic book business. So overall, interesting issues, and I'm just digging how these combinations of things happen to work out this month. But from the combination of Sir Rob Lance and World's Greatest Comics, I read a handful of Detective Comics issues, 535, 564, and 627. 535 was good with Crazy Quilt taking on Batman and really messing up young Jason Todd. But the class of this crop is 627, the 50th anniversary of the first Batman story ever in Detective 27. And this is the 80-pager that had four stories, all titled The Case of the Chemical Syndicate, including a full-color reprint of that first story. So it also had a 30th anniversary version written by Mike Friedrich, and then versions by Wolfman and Apero, and then Alan Grant and Norm freaking Brayfogle. And from the combination of Sir I Was Joe and Brenda the Crazy Cat Lady, and that's a phrase I never thought I'd say. But from them, I read Justice Society of America 20 and 26 from the Jeff Johns series from 2007-ish. Uh, issue 26 was, in fact, John's last work on the title. So two very different stories. 20 was a JSA versus JSA story with alternate universes and timelines as the confusing uh, culprit. But 26 was really good. It was a, a downtime issue. Again, it was John's last issue, and he was uh, saying farewell uh, to the title. It featured Courtney Whitmore, a star girl and had a bunch of JSA members, old and new, and I like that, because it reminded me totally of the Stargirl TV show, which I am watching, and more often than not, enjoying. And Sir Rob Lance, the generous Canadian, also sent a bunch of cool Bronze Age DC books. Brave and the Bold, 167, 180, 186, 188, and 196. This, of course, is a title... That's just a real fun bit from that era. And in these issues, we had team-ups with Blackhawk, the Spectre, Hawkman, Rosenthorn, and Ragman. And Nemesis, serving as a backup in four of these five issues. So that feature ran for a pretty good duration. Most of these had art by Jim Aparo. And even here in the early 1980s, his Batman was still pretty solid. I liked all the team-up characters to one degree or another. 
but I think the best overall story was with Ragman, because it had a great Bronze Age trope of the heroes trading costumes and taking each other's place. That was fun. Actually, all of these were fun, because you had a Batman who could get beaten up, a Batman who went up against ancient mystical curses. Just, again, a whole bunch of fun. Uh, Sir Rob also sent some other team-up stories. Marvel team-up, 88 and 93, from right around 1980. In these, Spidey gets teamed up with the Invisible Girl, and then Werewolf by Night, or actually, Jack Russell was just called Werewolf at the time. Both were fine stories, but I enjoyed the Invisible Girl one a lot more, and not just because it featured the only member of the FF worth paying attention to, but because of the relationship between she and Spidey. For the whole issue, he calls her Mrs. Richards, which is adorable and is reflective of the politeness and the values that his aunt and uncle instilled in him. My buddy, Chris Willette of Bizarre Manor, he spent some time during lockdown doing some household cleaning, including going through his comic collection and downsizing and sending me stuff, joining that proud band of nutballs in the hashtag comic book circle of life. Welcome, Christopher. Welcome. And a lot of what he sent were freebie and giveaway books he'd accumulated over the years, including these four, which were part of a recent Halloween comics fest. Archie's Pals and Gals, Doctor Strange, Spookarama, and Marvel on Disney XD. The Marvel ones were regular-sized comics, but the Archie and Spookaramas were the size of digests. I mean, the dimensions of, of digests. They were much shorter, like 16 pages, but they were of that, that smaller size. The Archie one was good. And the Doctor Strange one was really good. The first issue of The Oath, uh, that storyline. But special attention must be given to the Marvel Disney XD book. Which that story is for both Ultimate Spider-Man and Avengers Assemble. Both of which were very good cartoons. And the Avengers story in this issue does feature Doctor Doom going up against vampires and winning. Then, the last few pages, they have to give one of the quote-unquote heroes a quote-unquote hero moment by beating up Doom, but there's no reason to believe that part of the story actually happened. It's a shame, because the first 80% of that story had so much potential. Chris also sent another free book, the Way of Shadows free preview, the first 20 pages of the graphic novel version of Brent Weeks' fantasy novel, The Way of Shadows, which is the first book of his Night Angel trilogy. I've read others of Weeks' uh, prose novels in a, a different series, the Lightbringer uh, series, but not uh, this one. So this definitely intrigued me. So in that case, a job well done for the preview issue. Chris also sent a book from the original Valiant Days, Hardcore number 13, which was, you know, very 90s-ish. And Shock Rockers, number one from Image, an interesting 1999 sci-fi war kind of book from Kurt Busiek and Stuart Immonen. And from Paul T. from Stop and Smell the Analog, that podcast, 
who sent a big box of comics in exchange for me just paying for the postage. I read some Spidey, including a very controversial issue. This is The Amazing Spider-Man 499, 541, 545, and 549. This is the end of JMS's run, and as you may know, I'm a big fan of JMS's writing in general. And the bits of his Spidey run that I've read have been solid enough. But this pack does include ASM 545, the end of One More Day, the literal issue where Peter's deal with Mephisto comes to a conclusion with a point that many people forget, Mary Jane actually making the final decisive call after Peter sort of dilly-dallies about for a couple of uh, issues. Those last few issues of JMS's run are credited to him and Joe Quesada. And, of course, the sense is that Quesada had a lot to do with this. Certainly, ending the marriage was an editorial decision. And even though JMS wasn't a big fan of the way his tenure on the book ended, I appreciate the fact that Marvel gave over a couple pages at the end of 545 to celebrate JMS and his run. And my favorite bit of this was a quote attributed to Stan Lee. Excelsior, which is Straczynski, spelled backwards. Now, whoever came up with that line, and it may very well have been Stan himself, pretty funny. And I'm going to admit, I'm not sure where I got these next couple of books from. A fact that I count as a major comics reading journal failure. But I read Blue Beetle 3 and 4, straight from the mid-80s. We have a Ted Court facing down the colorful squad, the Mad Men, and then a powered-up Dr. Alchemy. I haven't read much, if anything, from this run, but I enjoyed these issues and the setup for the ongoing, both at the business end and with his personal life. And this took place in Chicago, which is a very nice change of pace, uh, and certainly an unusual change of pace for DC to actually put this in a real city. Uh, I mentioned reading some Superman before, and I read five more issues from that title that I got from literally five different sources. So thanks to Billy D, Sir Rob Lance, Mike from Comics in the Golden Age, Carla Y, and Pulp Reality. I read Superman 210, 247, 268, 314, and 316, which all fell between 1968 and 1979. This was such an interesting range of issues with Superman taking on the Guardians of the Galaxy and alien invaders and a gang of thieves from Metropolis. And the last one, 316, featured a guest appearance by Rose and Thorn, which I'm coming to always count as a good thing. But my favorite of these five by far was Superman 268. It took place in the nation's capital, ostensibly also a real city, and featured a guest appearance by Congresswoman Barbara Gordon. As a matter of fact, Batman appeared to be setting up Barbara with his buddy Clark Superman Kent. Very strange little 1970s storyline. And I felt Stella's righteous rage when Clark was busy in D.C. and thought bubbled, all I need is to have my life complicated 
by some red-headed congresswoman. Shocking. Shocking attitude, Clark. And these books led me to the DC app, and from there I read a few other books in this general era, Action 338 and 339, in which a future Superman takes on the alien Muto, and also a couple pretty solid Supergirl backups. I've mentioned Crazy Comics earlier this episode a couple of times. That's the Black-Owned Shop. And I also picked up a few issues of a book from only about a year and a half ago, As Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and 3. This one really makes use of the movie versions of Nebula, Gamera, Thanos, that whole wing of the MCU. The concept is basically Nebula versus Angela, with a side of young Loki thrown in. Cullen Bunn does the writing, and that helps me care about the characters more than maybe I otherwise uh, would because of his his skilled uh, characterization. So overall, I'd say I enjoyed these. Uh, And it was during this reading that I realized just how much of the Thor and Guardian side of the Marvel U from, say, 2016, 2017, I've actually read. That kind of surprised me, but between a lot of Thor couple Star-Lord trades, and this, and bits of War of the Realms. I've kind of read a decent amount of this stuff. Weird that it took my brain this long to actually sort of process and figure that out. Okay, this next story is kind of embarrassing, because I remember flipping through the 50-cent boxes at Pulp Reality, and I was so proud that I'd managed to cobble together 75% of a series featuring a character I really like from a comic company I wasn't familiar with. Doc Savage 1, 2, and 4 from Millennium Comics. So you got to be pretty pleased finding three out of four issues. Except, as I flipped through them a couple weeks ago to read them, I saw that it was in fact issue one of one Doc Savage miniseries, issue two of a different miniseries, And you guessed it, issue four of yet a completely different miniseries. So it made for three very different and somewhat confusing reads, but that was totally my bad. And uh, thanks to my good buddy, Sir Luke Giaconetti, who sent me a couple of Marvel books from the 90s, which is not always how one good buddy treats another good buddy, but anyway... Uh, this was Dark Hawk 29 and 30, and they were kind of 90s-ish. Not really a fan of the, the New Warriors or any of their related offshoots. But among the handful that I've read, this one wasn't too bad. The second one was a tie-in to Infinity Crusade. Those are a little hard to read as disconnected standalone stories, but issue 29 uh, was certainly uh, solid enough. I think we've mentioned Brenda the Crazy Cat Lady before, and from her care package, I read Dark Stars 3, 20, and 37, a series from the 90s that I should be into. It has so many of the components I like. It's DC, it's sci-fi, it's cosmic, it's related to the GL core, but the various issues of this that I've read, it has just never worked for me. Uh, to be honest, Jan Michael Friedman's writing has never really been a draw for me. And when you throw in 90s-style art, 
it's just a solid meh for me. Uh, let's put it this way. I read these disparate issues, and I felt no compunction whatsoever to jump over to the DCU app to fill in the gaps. And my buddy Kirk Spencer, a.k.a. Big Five Army on Twitter, he gave me a Kickstarter trade paperback, John Aman, Amazing Man 1 through 6. This is a public domain character, a superpowered fella, who works with a shadowy agency to protect humanity. Over the course of the trade, we get his origin story, which involves an eastern monastery, and lots of scientists and technologists who are doing bad, or at least very unwise, things. And of course, we meet his love interest. And they were able to pull in a range of other public domain characters, including the original Blue Beetle, and Iron Jaw, Miss Mask, and Longbow. Uh, from what I read in the back matter, the goal was that every character with a speaking role in the entire series would be a pre-existing public domain character or be strongly based on one. Uh, one of the code names that the creators used for this series as they were developing it was Justice League of the Public Domain. It's a very interesting, very enjoyable story, mixing in modern sensibilities and classic uh, comic book concepts and influences. And from Sir I Was Joe, I read a couple of cool kitty comics from the late 60s. Treasure Chest, a fun and fact. Volume 23, issue 6, and volume 25, issue 1. I've read a couple of these before, and I have concluded that these must have been designed for schools and pediatricians' office waiting rooms. Because they have such a weird mix of biography and history stories, some humorous bits, and then a couple of kids' adventure stories. Just a, a such a strange and unique mix of stuff. But I think I'm kind of becoming a fan of the title. It just stands out as something so unlike any other comic. It's just a weird bit of uh, four-color comics history. I also hoopla the next couple of trades in the series I started earlier, The Woods, 5 through 12, which continues the story of a bunch of high school students and some staff and faculty who've been swooped off across the universe to an alien world of monsters, beasts, uh, high school cliques, unrequited love, love triangles, and general teenage drama. And also, you know, dangerous monsters and beasts of all kinds. And what we learn in these volumes is that this has happened many times before, people being brought to this planet regularly over the years, for centuries perhaps. And so that part of the mystery is growing of what this is, what exactly is happening here. So we're past the initial shock for the characters, that phase. And now we're asking bigger plot questions while the stress and strain is showing uh, in the characters. Some relationships are strengthening, and some are fraying. And The Woods is written by the excellent James Tynan IV. So, of course, the scripting is very solid. The characterizations are all very good. And overall, it is just a very well-written comic. Definitely will be revisiting future trades 
as the year rolls on. And I think that's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of the month, both Sarah and Sentient from TKO were very good. And like I said last month, I think, anytime a classic Denny O'Neill story is read, like Superman 233 this month, it's going to be pretty close to the top of the list. Uh, I just mentioned The Woods. That continues to be interesting. And it was a treat reading an issue of Heavy Metal. But in terms of what comic I thought was the best, or at least my favorite, I'm going with Detective Comics 627, the 50th anniversary issue, which had all of those different takes on the first Batman story ever. Now, next month, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be reading other than some old John Carter comics and that Ain't Archie Explores into the Unknown series I mentioned. But other than that, who knows? But whatever I do end up reading, I will be here to talk about those books that I read in August, and that episode should be out sometime in early September. And thanks again for TKO Studios for sending some good material our way. Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode, what you think of any of these books that I've mentioned, especially if you've read any of them. You can send that feedback via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com, or as a comment on the Facebook and blog post for this episode, the blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. You can follow the network on Twitter at relatively underscore geek. And, of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening, and keep the pages turning.